Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Okay, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking again about the Kingdom of God. And this morning, we were talking about a lot of different things. We are talking about, you know, I mean, what's gone on on Twitter and why it's going on. And the fact that the new normal was brought to you by the old normal, and the old normal wasn't that good to begin with. Because we've been doing something fundamentally, fundamentally wrong for... Literally centuries. I mean, it's gotten worse in the last 50 or 60 years, but we have accepted a lie so that we not only don't believe the truth, we don't even recognize the truth. And you you can go back to ancient philosophers, you can go back to Jesus Christ, certainly John the Baptist. They told you what the solution was for today. And they never mentioned Trump once. (laughs) They never mentioned Twitter once. Those are not your solutions. I mean, it's fine to dabble in those things because we do live in the world, but we do not live of the world or we should not live of the world. And almost nobody who quotes that knows what that means. One, they don't even look up the meaning of the word world as used in the text of the Bible. So they don't even know what they're talking about. And uh, the other is, is that even if they looked up the word, They don't really understand how the world works. And so, there have been philosophers since ancient times that have been trying to figure out how the world works. And, uh, you know, I woke up uh, this morning and I thought I should look up the word woke. Not in the English, but in the Greek. And I have no idea why I was supposed to look up the word woke. I mean, you got this... The woke crowd who are running Twitter and now supposedly Elon Musk is going to replace them. And we talked a great deal this morning about how he's going to run into all kinds of problems. There's even more problems than what we mentioned because of the acts that are, have already been, been in the process of passing and, uh, and a lot of other things that have been going on behind the scenes in Europe and in the United States and and turning uh, where your presidents have been betraying you in the United States and as well as in Australia and New Zealand and all these other places. They're selling out because really they're all about power and money and they've been uh, fed a bill of goods about how they will get power and how they would need to do this because they... They've accepted the idea of the Great Reset, or at least some form of the idea of the Great Reset. And the Great Reset is really brought to you by the the evil one, by the dragon. But the dragon gets shot down eventually and and crashes from heaven. (laughs) I guess uh, whatever that means. I mean, you can draw all kinds of pictures and imaginations, and that's really what we're going to talk about is all these, the, the, the imagination that people have. But anyway, I looked up the word woke, and there is no Greek word woke. There's a couple of words that begin with the letters that we could call woke, and uh, 
in the Greek, but you had to actually Google it in the Greek letters to evidently find what I was looking for, which is actually what popped up. Only one one site with the word that I was looking for popped up, and the whole internet. (laughs) Only one site popped up, and it's kind of unusual that it even popped up. I don't really understand why it popped up. It's actually somebody who has had read, or, you know, they take a book and they scan it in, and then the scan turns it into optical character recognition, and it spells out all the words of the book. Except for some of the letters it got confused on and put in other letters. I noticed like a lot of the N's as it put it in were actually the Greek letter N. And it had to do with whether it's at the beginning of the word or in the middle of the word. But in one place it had the Greek letter for W and the Greek letter for O (laughs) and K. And if you didn't look it up, writing it in the Greek, you would not have found the book. So what is the book? Uh, you know, and who wrote it? Well, the book is In the Dark Places of Wisdom. Well, that caught my eye right away. <laughs> that sounds interesting. The Dark Places of Wisdom. Because wisdom is a thing of light. So how do you have the dark places of wisdom? But anyway, you have to understand the author and and I really don't know where this guy's coming from. He's an interesting guy. I looked him up. I've I've run across him before. He's Peter Kingsley. And, you know, he's written a a number of books. Uh, I actually had a list that I was setting aside here somewhere. Uh, Peter Kingsley. Let's see. Do I have that? Yeah. Here we go. Peter Kingsley. You know, he, he, the major theme... Uh, of Kingsley, he argues that the writings of uh, pre-Socrates philosophers like uh, uh, Parmenides and uh, Epidosius, uh, oh, uh, uh, yeah, I think that's his name. But anyway, they're, they're early philosopher, pre-Socrates uh, philosophers. And, and actually, if you study them, and I've read some of their stuff. I haven't read it in the Greek. Uh, evidently, uh, Kingsley knows Greek, and he was examining one of the poems of Parmenides, uh, and said that he, because he was considered not really a very good poet, but he wasn't really first a poet. He just wrote kind of in a poetic style, and this is something I know. I used to write poetry, and uh, when I was inventing the poem which sometimes I, I could just spew it out and uh, just just write it as fast as I could write. I could think it faster than I could write. And uh, it's putting in meter and it's putting in rhyme and it's putting in patterns of stanzas, you know, if, whether it's a limerick or whatever. And you're thinking, well, how is your brain doing all that calculating? Because <laughs> I'm just saying this. It's just coming out of me kind of thing. And but that is kind of you know there are people who uh, who stutter but they don't stutter when they sing and they don't stutter when they recite poetry because you use a different part of your brain to do this which is why I wrote the first book Covenants of the God uh, Gods uh, with a certain pattern that I did because 
when you use the left brain, right brain thing, when you use different parts of your brain, whether it's left brain, right brain, it often is left brain, right brain, and you go back and forth, you're actually stimulating uh, an area between the two that connect. And women naturally have a better connection there, but they actually are missing connections other places. But men have a very poor connection there, generally speaking. Uh, but they have other connections and they have ways, you know, the brain works differently in men and women, generally speaking. And very similar, but yet distinctively different. But um, he... Per, Permenides, uh, he's considered the father of Western logic. He supposedly began this logic. And, uh, but he talks about mysticism and magic and all kinds of other things. But of course, a great deal is lost in translation, uh, because of the fact that we're taking their words that we don't entirely understand and translating them into our words that we often don't entirely understand. And our words, uh, can mean something slightly different than their words actually intended to mean. We may not even have a word in our language to compare with the word that he's using. Plus, like with Paul's writings, Paul was making up words that nobody ever used except for Paul. And it was because he was talking about a subject that you is difficult to understand, which we're told by Peter that Paul's going to talk about something that is difficult to understand. And, uh, actually, I just thought, do I have that recording going? Probably, yes, I do. Okay. Anyway, um, Permenides was talking about, you know, the past and the present and how we think. And, and he's really, even though he's this, creating this Western logic, he actually is very enmeshed in the actual spirit because some of these early philosophers or whatever you want to call them uh, understood, and, and this is what we see right away in the Bible, that this pattern that we see in the universe, which we talked about this morning, you know, cause and effect pattern, intelligent design pattern, that when you do certain things, certain effects will take place. It's built into the system. And that this intelligent design, it permeates from the, from the atomic level to the atom level and even subatomic level and, and to atoms and molecules, etc. They're all this uniform, uh, chemical and physics reactions and actions are all the result of this cause and effect, which are on minute scales and on grand scales, etc. And it seems to be somewhat consistent, although things like that we thought were consistent, like speed of light, is not that consistent. I mean, it's somewhat consistent by our standards, but the reality is, is evidently, for some reason, the speed of light has slowed down. At least that's the way their calculation. Maybe it's our perception has sped up, and it just looks like it slows down. <laughs> I mean, we look at the stars and we say, well, they're... You know, the, the red shift, they're moving away so that you get this because the frequency and, and the motion of things. And so how long are they going to keep moving away? And eventually will we not see any more stars? And, and then what happens when they get out to a certain distance? Do they actually start stagnating and then coming back? And then, 
crash into another Big Bang? Is that how it works? I mean, I don't know. But uh, others have the theory that stars are continuing, universes are continually being born. And where are they being born from? And this is one of the things in, we talked about how you know, these particle colliders are saying that they're seeing energy come from another dimension. So, did this dimension come from another dimension? Well, according to the Bible, yes, it did. Because the Bible talks about a spiritual dimension. They don't use the word dimension, but they talk about spirit and heaven. And that's another dimension. And that the physical world was created by the spirit. The spirit of God moved where there was a void and then there wasn't a void anymore. And so the philosophers are thinking the same way. They're thinking that the spiritual uh, comes into being and organizes the physical. And so how do they distinguish the physical mind from the spiritual mind? Are there two minds? You know, one of the questions they would ask Kinsley in an interview is that uh, uh, why are we divided from this other spiritual realm? And he says, we're not. We're not divided. That's part of the illusion that we're divided. But we do seem to be divided because we're not really thinking in the spiritual realm. We're thinking about spirit, but we're not really thinking in the spiritual realm consistently. We're often thinking in the physical realm. And we know that, or we think we know that. (laughs) Intellectually, we know that. Because we know that our thoughts are affected by things that happen in the physical realm. You know, somebody jumps out and says, boo, and we're, good, we're frightened. And now we have frightening thoughts in our mind. We see a scary movie, and the scary movie is just a two-dimensional image on a screen, but yet we get frightened. You know, we know that's just an image. Why are we frightened? Uh, because of the fact that our minds that we're thinking with are our physical minds. And what happens in the physical world affects the physical mind. Is our mind also a spiritual thing? Well, actually, we have a spiritual mind. And if you look in the Hebrew and you're looking at the words that they translate into mind sometimes or translate into soul sometimes, well, wait a minute. Is the word mind and the word soul the same thing? No, it, to us it's two different words. I mean, they maybe have certain overlapping similarities, but they're not the same. So, yeah, you have a physical mind, an intellectual mind, you know, like a person who's really smart and holds lots of facts in his mind and all this stuff. We say he's, he's a genius. But then there's somebody else who maybe is intuitive or whatever, but doesn't have a lot of information in his mind. And but he's he has real compassionate and all these things. Well, we say he has a good soul. One has a good mind, the other one has a good soul. But in the Hebrew, the same word might be translated mind or it might be translated soul. Theoretically the same word. Now they do add letters and all that stuff, but we don't want to make this too complicated. The point is is that you have a spiritual mind, which you could call the soul or the spirit even, 
And then you have a intellectual, physical mind, brain, that seems to hold facts and access data and information. And so, are they separate? Are they connected? And what does that have to do with left brain, right brain? And saying something, thinking, you know, when you read prose, you'll read it with one side of your mind. And when you read poetry, or sometimes just quotes, you'll read it with the other part of your mind. Or at least it will become more consciously aware of it in the other part of your mind. Which is why I said, you know, there are certain stutterers that when they sing, they don't stutter. Because they're using another part of their mind. Their stuttering is over over in this other side where they they do talking and and uh, read, even read uh, you know prose. But when they're singing, they're over on the other side, so they don't stutter when they use that side. Uh, there may be singers that only stutter when they sing, but of course they don't end up on TV. So I don't know. I've never seen them sing. <laughs> they probably don't do much singing. But uh, the reality is, is that whatever damage that was causing him to stutter didn't exist over there in the other part of his mind. Okay, back to soul, spirit, and mind. What do we talk about a lot of times? Tree of knowledge, tree of life. Two trees in the same garden, in the same protected place. Because that's what a garden is. It's a protected place. Is it a geographical location? Well, could be. But that geographical location would also be a metaphor for a guarded place. Which also your physical body is really just a metaphor for your spiritual body. Just like your physical mind is really just a representation of your spiritual mind. And... But your physical mind is affected also by the physical world. Your spiritual mind is not necessarily affected by the physical world, except for the fact that your physical mind is, and that may have an effect on your spiritual mind. Such as if I stomp on your toe, then you will become angry, and that anger will affect your spirit. But if I stomped on your toe and you forgive me, then... The anger will not have such a negative effect on your spiritual life. And in fact, your forgiveness may increase the wind of your spiritual life. Now, that was, there was a lot in that statement right there. And I don't know if everybody would get it. But uh, this is really what uh, some of these philosophers, uh, Parmenides and others, were really talking about is this uh, spiritual existence and what drives it, uh, what, what brings about the creative and life-giving force of the Creator into your personal reality in this moment. You know, like we say, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. You can study history and not learn from history. <laughs> what was the... It was a philosopher. Oh, uh, Archibald MacLeish. Who really is more of an economist than a philosopher. But uh, uh, he was saying certain things about uh, uh, 
our right to choose. That we have a right to choose. And uh, if we don't exercise that right to choose, we may suffer. He says freedom is the right to choose. And the right to create for oneself the alternative of choice. So you can actually create for yourself by choice to put yourself in a place where you have more choices. You know, you can go to McDonald's and you get so many choices. But if you go to some other restaurant, you may have more choices. They don't have a wine list at McDonald's, so you'd get that. So anyway, but there's lots of ways you... You, you know, you can create choice for yourself, more choices for yourself by following a certain pattern of existence. And, and freedom is this right to choose. So if you take a path where you have less choices, where you don't have to make as many choices, you literally will be less free. You might not be in bondage, but you will be less free because you'll have less, less choices. So he says, freedom is the right to choose and the right to create for oneself the alternatives of choice. Without the possibility of choice and the exercise of choice, a man is not a man. He's not a son of Adam. But he's a member. That's what he says. He's a member, an instrument, a thing. He's an instrument of what? He's an instrument of whoever he gave the right of choice to. <laughs> you see, see when FDR said, yeah, yeah, before FDR, most welfare in America was provided by charity through churches and philanthropic organizations and, you know, charitable institutions. They took care of the needy and the poor of society. And they did a pretty good job. They they actually, you know, a lot of people, when they saw FDR coming along with his programs, they said, what, what is this for? We'll do better if we just do this ourselves. And in reality, now, economists, many economists have written lots of books saying that FDR's, you know, welfare system, you know, CCC and all these things, actually slowed the progress of the economy to come out of the Depression. If it wasn't for World War II, he, he would, we would have remained in de- a Depression through all of the 40s and probably into the 50s. Now, there was a price to pay for World War II. I mean, millions of people died. Uh, dictators were created. Uh other opportunities of choice diminished. It used to be before World War II, you could travel all over the world and not even have a passport. You could go to almost any country you wanted and you didn't have to have a passport. And the people who did that, they you, you didn't even have to be a citizen of a country. And the people who did that traveled around, and there were lots of them, because salesmen did this a lot of times, people who had businesses that had trade in lots of different nations. They were not a citizen of any particular nation. Because they might live in several different nations. They might know several different languages. They may even have several different nationalities, because you know one parent might be from one country, and the other parent might be from another country. And those people were called internationals. And... Because they were not of a nation. They were international. They were all over the place. 
They're very common. And some were rich, and some were poor. Gypsies were internationals. Gypsies moved from country to country, and they had no passport. You know, if they got into trouble, they they fell subject to the laws, but they had no passport. They didn't need it. It was after World War II, and, you know, Trieste, and, and the agreements of Trieste, and all this stuff, that everybody had to have allegiance to one country or another, or you couldn't get out of some of these refugee cities. <laughs> they wouldn't let you out unless you submitted to one government or another. That was a huge change in the world. Was it a change for the better? Well, to some degree, there were probably some pros and there were probably some cons. As a matter of fact, there was a lot of cons. But you wouldn't realize them till later because of that, when I talked about the lag in a cause and effect universe. You do something... You know, you make waves here, but they don't get across to upset somebody else's canoe for a little while because they have to travel across the lake of time. And so, but in a cause and effect, you nothing goes unaccounted for. And so, yeah, the, there would be eventual repercussions for that. And And coupled with other events, those repercussions may be I mean, you wouldn't have a mark of a beast unless you had all these nations. Then, you know, we talk about what the mark of the beast is and everything. It's not a chip. I mean, there is a chip, but there's nothing in the Bible to say that the mark of the beast is a chip. It's, it's just not in there. Uh, there are people who like to twist and turn the language and make leaps in conclusions, but... There's nothing in the Bible about a chip. And we, we talk about it in, a, in our article on the Mark of the Beast, and we talk about it in our article on um, uh, Karagma, which I mentioned this morning. And like I said, I added to our article on Karagma uh, so that it would, you know, what I, I do, you know, I, I give you a fairly good argument as to what, Karagma is the Greek word that they translate into Mark. And it had a very particular meaning at that time. I could show you, actually on the page I have several pictures of different karagmas. And some of them create the bonds of servitude where you're a slave. And because that's what karagma often meant at certain periods of time in history. Karagma meant a badge of servitude. It's actually more like your ID. Uh, because... You know, it says who you are. And it might be, you you might have got, the Titleist will do the same thing. That's the Latin. Um, and actually, the Christians even had something similar. And they called it the Logos, which we see it mentioned in some of the writings of Justinian. Uh, or, you know, in the Justinian codes. That a Logos, which is the Greek word for word. And, of course, why they picked that is because Jesus often used the word, Greek word for word to express the word of God, you know, the logos. I am the word. I am the truth. I am the light. And so Christians named, or at least it became the reference, the Christian ID, identification deal that would identify you um, if you were traveling. 
it, it was referred to as the Logos in the Justinian Codes. And we quote that in one of the books and show where we got it. So you can look at the footnotes. A lot of people say, well, why is the church issuing ID? Well, you don't have to have it. But, I mean, the letters that Paul often wrote, you know, this is Timothy, who is my brother. He's I simply identifying. He's bearing witness. He's, he's signed it. People know what his signature looks like or his writings look like. We'll look at the letter from Paul, and it says, this is Timothy. He was, you know, treat him like a brother. It's a letter of introduction. And um, we had that even before passports. I mean, passports originally in America, especially in America, the only one who got a passport was like ambassadors. You didn't get a passport when you traveled to England or if you were in France or Normandy and traveling over to England or traveling over to Germany or Norway. You didn't travel with a passport. That that just didn't exist. But uh, you can go all the way back to ancient Rome. Ambassadors coming from another country, they would bring a passport that would identify them and they would... It would be registered like if you went to Rome to talk to the emperor or to some senators of Rome, representing your country as an ambassador, which we call apostle. That's what the word apostle really means. It means ambassador. But when you, if you were officially coming to Rome, you would take your introduction papers and file copies of them at the Temple of Saturn. Because the Temple of Saturn was a government building, and you would put government documents there. And they would register that so-and-so ambassador came from such-and-such a country, and he had these letters, and they might copy the letters or say, you know, write something about the letters and write it down to keep that record that he was in the, he's not there as a spy, he's there as an ambassador. And it's just a way of communicating. So, but a kragma was specifically usually a, a piece of clay that somebody etched in and identified you as whoever you are. I mean, it could actually be, you know, where I talk about uh, uh, tessera is also a piece of clay with something written on it, a symbol or emblem, and it represented some, and people would identify. It might might be a tessera that says you get to go to the games for free, to the Colosseum for free. You have to sit in the cheap seats, but that tessera gives you a seat in the Colosseum. Or it might give you free bread. You could go to the free bread handout window next to the temple, and you show that, and they'll give you bread that day. You come another day, and they will, you know, you could run around the back of the line and show it to them again. But they said, I just saw you here a few minutes ago. Do like one of my neighbors did. It says, no, that was my twin brother. <laughs> no, but uh, it was just a, it was just a way of keeping records and keep track of things. We're a lot better at it now, but we got a lot more people. But a tessera hospitalis might be issued by a family. You know, it might be clay. It might be, you know, if you had a higher position, it might be made out of bronze or or lead, and it would have etched in it your name and, and your status in relationship to the family. And I, I leave pictures there. It shows such uh, tessera hospitalis, which basically says that because of some service, 
that your family performed years ago, maybe 50 years ago, maybe 100 years ago, for this family, you show that and you're welcome in. And anybody with you are welcome into the house. They'll feed you and house you and embrace you because you're carrying that thing that was given to you by that family maybe a generation or two before. And, and that, those were common, and the reason I mentioned that, these are common traditions. So, what does that have to do with those philosophers I was talking to you about? <laughs> well, they're, they're talking about reality. I mean, uh, the same guy who wrote the one book, uh, that I was mentioning, you know, The, the Dark Place of Wisdom. Yeah, like I said, he also wrote other books. Is Peter King, Kingsley, and they have uh, similar topics. You know, one one the most recent one that I know of is Reality. I think was uh, one he wrote, and it's it's very interesting where he talks about how our perception of reality. You know, like I often say, the kingdom of God is in the now; it's in the moment. So why are we concerned with the past? Because that's how the moment got here. By way of the past. Some of the past is ingrained in the moment. And what you realize now in the moment is going to alter the future. But the kingdom of heaven in which we act is in the moment. We don't act in the past. That's done. We don't act in the future. That's not here yet. We act in the moment. But what do you act from? You know, a lot of people like, you know, Scrooge and his Morley's chains. He's dragging these chains around. They represent all the bad things that he did during his life. We are all dragging the chains of our past. We, maybe, maybe we abandoned our family. Maybe we, uh, uh, were cruel to somebody. Maybe we robbed somebody. Maybe we killed somebody once. And those events are dragged into the future. They will always be dragged into the future, into the moment. We will drag them with us in the moment. Because if we do not forgive, if we do not make recompense. You know, they, they have the, one of the sacrifices they talk about in the Old Testament is a, a turtle dove. You're supposed to sacrifice a turtle dove. And so there was an actual market for turtle doves. People would catch turtle doves, raise turtle doves, and bring those turtle doves and sell them to people who needed to, thought they needed to kill this turtle dove and sacrifice it in order to be saved from their sins. Now, you know, a lot of modern Christians think that's what the Old Testament was saying. You know, like you're supposed to pile up stones and burn up sheep, and that's going to make God happy. And you could do the same thing with a turtle dove in recompense of what terrible things you have done. Except it doesn't say that. That, that, that is, that's just in the imagination of modern Christians and, and modern Jews. And it was also in the imagination of Pharisees. But there are other religious groups who read the same Torah who said, no, no, that's not what it says. So what did they say it said? Well, the same exact word for turtle dove is the same exact word for a piece of your estate. What you own. The stuff that you you gathered as a capitalist. 
because Israel was a capitalist nation. It was until the Pharisees got a hold of it. The Pharisees in that particular generation, not all Pharisees, but at the time of Herod, there was a group of Pharisees, kind of like FDR, who decided to have a social welfare system based on the government, where the right-handed government forced the contributions of you or somebody else, and then they redistributed it through the temples, through the government temple, which was a government building. Just like the Romans were redistributing their free bread through government buildings. Yeah, they called them temples, but they were, they were government buildings. And they were run by the government. And to be a priest made you a part of the government. And, you know, I mean, that's what one of the roles that Caesar took on was this, uh, uh kind of procurator curator of Rome where he was the priest's the priest. He was, well, Constantine called himself the bishop of bishops, the overseer of overseers. And he sat on a golden throne at his council of Milan and at his council of uh, Nicaea. And he spoke to the bishops that followed his way. Not the way of Christ, his way. And we talked about that this morning as well. And if you know, you'll want to hear that show, join the network, we'll send it out. And uh, send that copy out. And then we'll have it posted eventually uh, somewhere. Uh, where it fits in. Because what Christ was doing is creating a priesthood that was rooted in the Holy Spirit, but uh, chosen, chosen by God, but then also secondarily chosen by the people. Because the people had to recognize, or at least believe or imagine, that this man was a priest of God. Now, how do you know if he really is a priest of God, a minister of God, a minister of God's kingdom. You know, see, I say the word priest, like I said this morning, I say the word bishop, and you think of today's bishop. But that isn't what the early church bishops were. And the same as the early church priests were not priests like you see today. They're not doing what the early church did. And we, we say that, and we show that in many ways. It's easy to prove. That they're not doing it. It's not easy to prove to people who say, I, I, I'm not listening. <laughs> I'm not listening. Because when they don't want to listen, it's really hard to prove anything to them. And that's one of the things that we see in the woke crowd today is that they are like void of any kind of reasoning. Even, even a socialist, uh, conservative, which is amazing that there is such a thing. But, you know, a Republican or a person who says they're a Republican, but they're actually really a socialist. I mean, if you believe in public school, you're a socialist. Because public school is a socialist program. Where you, you take from this guy's business and that guy's business and that guy's business and that guy's home and that guy's family. You take from them so that you can pay for your school. And you take from them by men who exercise authority. It was just absolutely the opposite of what Christ said to do. He said not to do that. You're doing that. And you still think you're a Christian. Well, James could tell you, well, you can tell they're not a Christian because they're not doing what Christ said. Even Christ says that in John. Why do, you, why do you say, Lord, Lord? And you don't do the things that I say. You don't keep my commandments. You covet your neighbor's goods so you can have a free education. You covet your neighbor's goods so you can have free bread. 
You covet your neighbor's goods so you can have free welfare. That's not the kingdom of God. You're so far from the kingdom of God, you wouldn't know if you stumbled over. So here I come along and say, hey, that's not the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. So what's the problem? Why is this so difficult to see? Well, go back to these Greek philosophers. And it doesn't have to be, you know, actually in one of the pages, I think it was the one on communes or the one on communities that I expanded. Every week I add to them. And because somebody asks you about some things, and I give a, you know, a fairly brief answer, maybe a thousand words, and try to explain it. And then somebody asks a question again, and I go back and I look at it again, and I say, well, okay, this guy's asked the question a little bit different. He's looking at it from a little bit different angle. So then I go back to the article, and I put in the rationale as to why that doesn't or does work if you look at it because of how things work. But anyway, back to the Greek philosophers, is they're saying that this... This soul, this spiritual mind, because that's what your soul is really. It's a connection. A soul can also be representative of what you have a right to when we talk about corporeal and incorporeal hereditaments. But a lot of the times, as the word is used, it has to do with your spiritual mind. And your spiritual mind can be affected by the Holy Spirit or it can be affected by unholy spirits, which may be in... You know, maybe in your school teacher, or <laughs> maybe in your uncle, or other people that come across your life, they can infect you with their spiritual way of thinking, their this other way of thinking, and that's where the darkness of wisdom comes from. He said it was really difficult to write that because of the fact that you know he had to go to very dark places to see how we do this, how we. Get this wisdom from darkness. See, if you love darkness, I went into this, John 3, being born again of the Spirit is being born again of light. But if you don't love the light, you cannot be born again of the Spirit. You, and your works will be iniquitous. They will not be good. And that's how you know you're in need of repentance is if your work, if, like if you were to sell yourself and your children back into the bondage of Egypt, because you chose to sign up for FDR's, who exercised authority for his benefits, because he said he was a benefactor, but he, the only way he could give you stuff is to take it away from somebody else. So he was one of those benefactors who exercised authority, one over the other. And if you wanted his benefits, you could sign up and then you could get his benefits. And that was a voluntary act to sign up. You didn't have to sign up. They might intimidate you a little bit, but you didn't have to. And if your churches were really doing what they were supposed to be doing, nobody would have to sign up. But because so many people did, now the the government has laws. They can't exclude you from things if you haven't signed up for their system of social welfare by men who exercise authority. If you haven't signed up, you don't have to. But they will get all the other people that have signed up to refuse to do business with you. That's what we see happening with, you know, they're not, they're not squelching free speech on Twitter because you have a right to free speech, but they're a private company. So they can, they can let on whoever they want because they're a private company. And they can. But they hate free speech. 
they're not for free speech. They're, they're against free speech. And you can't have a free nation without free speech. And that's, that's one of the things that a lot of people just don't. These people do not understand that you cannot have a free nation without free speech. You have to have that free speech. So they say, well, you know, I just listened to the CEO of uh, Twitter, or at least he's been that. I guess he's probably going to get replaced. <laughs> they won't need a CEO in that sense anymore. They'll have they'll probably have somebody take over the role. But uh, this idea of free speech, uh, yeah, I have a Twitter. And I uh, haven't used it in years and years. I've used it a couple times in the last few weeks, but uh, or last week since Elon bought it. I thought I'd give it a shot and see if I got any, didn't know what to say. But I have a lot of ideas to put on it, and maybe we'll, we'll use that. But we'll also use the network, and we'll also use the extended network to get out the information and messages that... Uh, yeah, that's one of the things that you, you need to have organized thinking. And I, I think there's actually something malevolent about uh, the way in which um, Windows keeps moving all the street signs in <laughs> Windows. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, but uh, if you – let's go back. What he's saying that, that you have to – that, that you're not, you know, the, the spiritual is not separate from the physical. And of course, that, that, I mean, that would be the, almost the definition of death is that you separate the spirit from the physical, the physical body. But the reality is the spirit, in, and, and to some degree, from one point of view, it's not separate. But we do separate it. You see, if the tree of life is your spiritual mind. The the representation of your spiritual mind in your person. And the tree of knowledge is your physical mind. Then you, when you ate of the tree of knowledge, rather than eating of the tree of life, you did something wrong that made you embarrassed. You realized you didn't have the authority to decide what was good and evil of your own knowledge. Because you, you don't have an infinite amount of knowledge. But if you're eating of the tree of life, you actually are tapping into the data set of the creator of life, God himself. But when you betrayed God and said, I'm not going to listen to you, I'm going to be my own God. <laughs> That's what the, that was the temptation. I'm going to decide for myself what was good and evil. You find yourself hiding from the God who actually has all the answers. And see, when you hid from the God who comes to you by way of the tree of life, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you're hiding from the Holy Spirit. You're saying, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. Then you create a separation from that thing which gives you life to that thing which is just the tree of knowledge and doesn't give you life. Which means, of course, that now you have to get life from other places. So, you create the separation. Well, once you've created that habit of separation, then you can start to develop schizophrenia and, and start developing other identities. And that's what we see a lot of people doing that now. There are people with multiple identities. 
Then there's people with, you know, gender fluid. Well, I'm male, then I'm female, then I'm male again. Is because they're dividing themselves. They're doing it. Because of the choices they make. And, and people say, well, you know, you just give this gay person therapy and then he, he we can straighten them out. No, he can't. He can't change himself. He's given up certain rights to choose by denying certain truths. He's narrowed his choices. And that's what the Bible says. It says he's given over to this unnatural thinking. This, to this dysphoria, to this delusion. He's given over to it. Now, he can find his way back, but not simply by altering his mind. That's tree of knowledge stuff. You're going to alter his mind, his tree of knowledge. You're going to, like, prune it. You, and, and they actually literally did that with electroshock. They would electrically shock the person when they thought certain things so that they stopped thinking certain things. <laughs> And it could work, but it created all kinds of conflicts inside the person. But, of course, people do that now all the time. They do it with the media and everything else. They're they're brainwashing you intentionally through the media. So how do you protect yourself against that? You have to eat of the tree of life. Well, to eat of the tree of life, you have to see the dark places in your heart. And what are those dark places? It's when you judge others, when you hate others, when you betray others... You know, like Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ. When when uh, Peter denied Christ, he betrayed Christ. And Christ knew he was going to do this. Christ was okay with it because he had already forgiven him. So it didn't hurt Christ. But he said because he forgave him, he was also able to pray for him. It's hard to pray for people you haven't forgiven. At least pray effectively. So, what what's going on there is that if you do what Christ, the simple things that Christ said, forgive, and, and then you have to test that forgiveness. Did you really forgive that person? Well, now you have to sacrifice for his well-being. And you may have to sacrifice for the well-being of people you don't even know. You know, you may have to scratch somebody's back who did not scratch yours. <laughs> so, so, that's a test. I mean, Christ died that the whole world might be saved. You won't even gather together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands so that nine other people will be saved. (laughs) So, if you start doing that, you start being caring about those nine other people, and those nine other people will also care about the next congregation, and the congregations you never even meet. And they will do what? They will cast their bread upon the waters. And that tests whether or not they've really forgiven the whole world. That the whole world might be saved. I have to do this with wisdom because you don't want to weaken the poor in spirit. The people who don't want to see the truth. You don't want to weaken them. You, you want them to feel the pain of their foolishness so that they say, maybe I need to repent. <laughs> so, this is, this is how you awaken the tree of life in you. This is how you draw near the tree of life. That's why the word Corbin, which is sacrifice, comes from a word that means to draw near. Is because when you lay down your life for your fellow man, you draw you draw near the source of all life. 
You you want perpetual life. You want the fountain of youth. The fountain of youth is the fountain of forgiveness. The fountain of charity. The fountain of love. That's the fountain of youth. The less you love, the more you judge, the older you'll get. And and it takes a, a huge reverse of what we've been doing for the last 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. 70 years. I only went up to 70 because I'm just a little over 70. (laughs) But uh, you have to reverse that, which is repenting. Thinking differently helps you reverse that. But you have to turn that reversal into actions. It's not just about thinking about it. It's about going the other way. And socialism is going the wrong way. Uh, and we need to turn around from that and go back the the right way. Now, somebody wrote me. I thought I put that. Uh, oh, here it is. <coughs> and asked was uh, putting all these things in common. Just a first century church thing, you know, because he thinks that the the first century church held all things in common, like they were a socialist system. Uh, was that what God meant by not to be attached to the worldly treasures? Well, he did talk against central treasuries where thieves and robbers can break in and steal it. And of course, nobody's been robbed more than the people that put all their money in Fort Knox, all their gold into Fort Knox, which is not unlike putting all your gold into the golden calf. And was it robbed? You betcha. Well, I don't know if it was robbed, but it's not there anymore. You have nothing of value. You were supposed to put the gold and silver in your purse. That's what Moses said. But people say, oh, Jesus did away with that. No, Jesus did away with the rules of the Pharisees. And the rules of the Pharisees, they were very much doing that. They hadn't got as far along as you have gotten. That's going to be worse for you. But you've definitely returned to the bondage of Egypt. You're not... You've mistaken emotion for spirit. And you get your comfort from the world. From social security, from welfare, from unemployment, from all these things. And you need to turn around and go the other way. And that's what we're trying to show you. And that other way has to do with that choice of sacrifice. And this is probably the crooks of the whole thing. We only got about a minute left. It isn't that your labor now belongs to the modern federal pharaohs of the world. It isn't that you have sold your birthright. It isn't that you don't own your land. It isn't that you don't own your children and that you've made your children a surety for an ever-increasing debt. That is not what has really weakened you. What has really weakened you is that the choice of how to redistribute the wealth of the kingdom, which is in you, in your hands, supposed to be in your purse, you've turned over to somebody else. You don't know how to make those choices in the Holy Spirit. Learning to make those choices is what's going to turn you from a thing, from a piece of merchandise, to a man. And then if you make them according to the Holy Spirit, then you will become a son of God. But anyway, that's 
a little bit of my afternoon ramblings. And so uh, now we will say peace on your house and may God be with you. we got the Burning Bush Festival coming up. I will send an email out on the network to let you know um, what that... Uh, what the dates might be. Everybody will get to put their own input into it. Till then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.